Hello and welcome to Ohio Folklore. I'm your host, Melissa Davies. Today, we're exploring a towering structure which rises from the Appalachian Hills. Its twin spires have soared over manicured grounds for a century and a half. Originally designed as a place of respite for overburdened minds, it has a reputation today of darkness, sickness, and despair. This institution, though no longer in operation, is rumored to yet house lonely spirits, yearning to get well and return to their loved ones. Accounts of ghostly sightings in and around the structure itself are too numerous to count. They span decades. I'm talking about the Athens Lunatic Asylum, known today as the Ridges. For as ominous a character as it has today, when construction of the Athens Lunatic Asylum began in 1868, it was considered cutting edge in the world of mental health treatment. The design itself was promoted by psychiatrist Dr. Thomas Kirkbride, whose theories of mental health treatment revolutionized past barbaric approaches. Instead of sending vulnerable patients to be tortured in warehouses, away from the rest of society. Dr. Kirkbride believed providing patients with access to nature, sunlight, and fresh air were crucial to the healing process. Thus, asylums inspired by his theories were built in picturesque settings, allowing easy access to the restorative power of the natural world. It was for this reason that this spot just beyond the southern edge of the burgeoning city of Athens, was chosen for its gorgeous vistas in all directions. Using beauty as a healing force, when it came time to find an architect for this facility, early planners chose none other than Levi Schofield. Many of you Ohio Folklore listeners may recall that name from a previous episode. Nearly 18 years after designing the Athens Lunatic Asylum, Schofield would come to design the Ohio State Reformatory in Mansfield. This Cleveland native has certainly left a lasting influence on structures which have served those most vulnerable of Ohioans, prisoners, and those suffering mental illness. The asylum would officially open its doors to patients in 1874. In true devotion to the Kirkbride approach, patients received a full dose of the outdoors, including nature hikes, gardening, and the like. They also maintained jobs on the site, perhaps on the working farm, the greenhouse, or the carriage shop. Labor itself was viewed as a therapy, one that might help restore a burdened mind to health. At the height of its operations, the sprawling campus included some 78 buildings on more than a thousand acres. This behemoth of an institution would come to represent something of the change in attitudes toward the mentally ill. It provided a respite away from the stressors of routine life, a chance to reconnect with the natural world, to find one's footing through hard work. It's hard to imagine a way of thinking that could differ more from the reputation these decaying buildings have today. 
many who visit what remains of the Athens Lunatic Asylum come away with the feeling of foreboding. This is despite the fact that in its current use, part of the remaining structure is used for Ohio University's facilities, including an art museum and administrative offices. The main central building, the most iconic of all the remaining structures, leaves an imposing impression for most newcomers. Two Gothic red brick towers point skyward, framing a whitewashed portico four stories high. It leads the eye upward to the heavens, giving the viewer a feeling of rising above, perhaps transcending our worldly limits. What a fitting message for those who worked to free themselves of their own hellish problems. This is the kind of architecture we just don't see in new construction today. It's old and yet deeply familiar, perhaps on a spiritual level. No wonder Schofield wanted these structures to inspire such feelings in the most marginalized among us. Instead of me going on about this historic location, I'd like to offer you a personal introduction to the place by one man who knows it deeply. Mr. Steve Call spent his childhood on the campus itself. The son of a staff psychiatrist, Dr. David Call, Steve got to know the place as simply his home. And once he grew into adulthood, he made a career of working at the facility. I can't think of another person to offer a better overview of the place. So without further ado, come, hear his story. Well, I thought maybe we could start by, if I could ask you to tell me about your connection to the place. I understand it's been a lifelong connection. Well, we we moved there in June of 1965, and I turned 10 years old that same month. And we'd moved from MacArthur, Ohio, so, you know, I, we thought we'd hit the big time coming to Athens. They had department stores, a few other things that... You know, MacArthur had one traffic light and a gas station or two, and uh, we moved there in June. So I had all summer to kind of get acclimated to the place before I started school, and I, you know, met some other kids my age and made some new friends, and then and made friends with the patients, too. I was friends with them as well. All right. We, so at 10 years old, you said. Yeah, we'd play. You know, they had, back in those days, they had uh, uh, Athens State Hospital softball team and they had a team that they'd play Cambridge State Hospital and Columbus State Hospital and, and we'd always go down there when they were practicing and try and uh, you know get in there and catch fly balls and maybe get a couple swings in and uh, uh, we just had a great time it was it was like growing up on a state park I tell people it, you know it was just a little bit of everything I think it was they always said it was about 670 acres and uh, just a lot going on they is pretty much self-sufficient. They had their own uh, dairy barn and poultry and swine, and there was the uh, beef cattle were kept out at the Heppertsville farm. You know, it was just a lot to do, and well, there was probably, I'm guessing, 1,200 patients there then. It was a pretty big place. So it felt like a pretty uh, happy childhood? A, a nice oh, yeah. Place. Yeah. You couldn't ask for a better place to grow up. And, you know, like I said, I wouldn't. I wasn't scared of the patients, and they weren't, uh, you know, they never did anything to give me uh, reason to fear them. So uh, 
we were buddies with them. That's, We'd shoot that's baskets it. with them. They had an outdoor basketball court. And Friday afternoon and Friday night, they had a, a chapel up there, and they'd show movies. Uh, we'd go up there and watch movies with them. And that continued even into your teenage years? Yeah, we we moved off of there in December of 1971. The, the state kind of decided that that was uh, maybe too big a perk. My dad was a doctor there. That's how we ended up there. I guess I left that out. But um, that was like too big a perk for an employee to have uh, staying there. We, you know, we lived in a little duplex. It wasn't very big. But it was, as far as I know, I think it was pretty darn cheap. Anyway, my parents bought a house over on East State Street, and we moved off the hill and over to East State Street. Okay. And so then you finished high school. Yeah, finished high school here in Athens. I'm mm-hmm. an Athens High Bulldog. Sure. Uh, went a year of college over at Miami and then, and then uh, came back to OU in the uh, – the, after my freshman year, I decided that I didn't really want to run up a big college debt. So sure. I'd stay here in Athens and live with mom and dad and just uh, go to school here at OU. Okay. Can you speak to the kind of reputation that the place had in Athens? Did the locals... Well, the locals were always kind of leery of it, kind of thought it was spooky. And it was, you know, it was a little on the creepy side. Um you know, we were there around there all the time, so I didn't think twice about riding my bicycle through the basement of the place or anything else, you know. Yeah, it was a home There was some dark kind of uh, spooky places back in there, and some of the, you know, had some pretty funky smells and everything else. So it was right. kind of strange, but I was used to it. I see. So it was after your graduation from high school that you started working there, is that right? I started working there in 1978, uh, and I was just, I just turned 23. And I was going to OU, and I was kind of thinking, yeah, my roommate started working there, and he was making pretty good money, and I thought, you know, I, I'm kind of like, I'm pretty, a lot better at working than I was at going to school, so I kind of liked having change in my pocket, so I started working there full-time in nursing, in 1978, and mm-hmm. I worked on the Lock Men's Ward, which was Ward Number Five. It was a pretty rough place, uh, you know, breaking up fights a lot. Uh, uh, you know, it was you had some you had some pretty rough days. The one good thing was no two days were ever the same. It was always something different. Yeah, you weren't going to get bored. No, no, not at all. I know a lot of the uh, reputation today, and of course it's been closed now since uh, I think 93, if I understand right. right. Yeah. Uh, but the reputation for the, the structure itself today is one where it has a, a spooky reputation and claims of ghostly sightings. <laughs> that kind of thing. So I've heard a lot of those, that. Melissa. And yeah, I do have a good one. Uh, you do. Oh. Um, when I worked on. Ward 5, I worked 3 to 11 shifts, and Ward 5 was on the second floor, and we would go to the end of the hall, and everything you went in, these were locker wards, so it was a uh, deadbolt lock, and then you'd you'd get out the door, open the door with the key, and then lock it back up the key on the other side, and then we'd go down to the fire escape to to leave work, and I did do that one night. Um, most of the time, we'd be three or four of us, whatever the work uh, crew was there, but Sometimes somebody leave early or stay late or something. So I did that, and I was by myself, 
and I was coming down the, the fire escape, and there was an area in the hospital that had been closed for several years, and I uh, heard something, and I kind of tilted my head over there, and what I was hearing was like an old manual typewriter, somebody typing on an old typewriter from this area that was pitch black, and it was 11 o'clock at night. Uh, mm -hmm. So needless to say, I got to my car pretty quick, got in there and kind of caught my breath, and then uh, I didn't leave work uh, at 11 o'clock by myself for a long time after that. Yeah, I made God. sure there was somebody with me just to make sure that uh, uh, there wasn't something under sure. a bush that was going to come grab me or something. Especially being alone, that would be yeah. more unnerving. Yeah. So that that kind of reputation, is that what it had among you and your coworkers at the time that you were working? Well, it, it, you know, everybody always thought there were spirits up there. And, you know, I had coworkers that would, uh, at the end of our shift, would take laundry and trash out. And the laundry rooms were down in the basement. Some workers just wouldn't go down there by themselves because they had seen something or heard something at one point or another. And they, uh, and I understood that, especially if they were, if they were, uh, younger people or older ladies that, you know, would ask you to walk them down there. You'd do that, you know. Just to be courteous, yeah. Yeah, and mm -hmm. give them a little peace of mind that uh, everything's okay. Yeah. So even though it had this creepy kind of atmosphere. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was real creepy, you know. You'd, you'd get down there. I've told stories about going down the laundry room and, and opening up the... Uh, laundry door and you turn the light on and it'd just be like a, a thousand cockroaches all oh. over the walls and the ceiling and everywhere else. Mm. Yeah. So this was a big old building. It was, I think it was started in 1868, but it, it didn't open up until 1874. So there was a lot of, and I think most of the brick and stuff was fired right here on the east side of Athens and, and taken up there on, on horse and wagon. So it took a long time to build the place, and, uh, you know, there's uh, a lot of history that goes with the building. So. Yeah, and I don't know if you can answer this question or not, but do you know what the name The Ridges means or how they chose? I'm not name? sure about that, Melissa. Okay. I don't know how they came up with that. <laughs> okay. we, we always called it The Hill, and we had T-shirts that had a picture of the main building and said, I'm from The Hill. One of the local T-shirt guys here in town that had a uh, T-shirt place cranked out the T-shirts. A lot of people bought them. We all, we all wore them. So there's a lot of pride in it from locals. Yeah, awful lot of pride. For sure, yeah. And it's usually, they call it the hill, typically. Yeah, that's what we called it. Okay. You know, well, in the old days, it was Athens State Hospital, mm -hmm. uh, ASH, and there was always the story going around that, Patients would leave the grounds, go to town, and then they'd tell, you know, they'd tell local people, well, I, I live here in Athens, I attend Ash College. Oh. <laughs> was our, their own little joke about where they were living. Sure. Um, a nice little inside joke there. Yeah. Yeah, and I have to say, you've given me a really nice in-depth view from somebody from the inside, somebody who's, you know, lived a good portion of your life. You know well, you know, the day I left, I was, and I'm not a real sentimental guy, but I cried because I was, you know, t to me, I spent, between living there and working there, I spent over half my life there. Yeah. <laughs>
It seems this is the kind of place that burrows deep into the souls of many who come to share an attachment to it. The perspectives you'll hear today come from locals, those who came to know the institution in largely positive ways. While the asylum was initially designed with the aim to heal and restore those who suffered, we should remember that many, many of its patients, the most vulnerable among us, anguished within its walls in ways we may never fully understand. And yet, it's still worth trying. Perhaps one of the most famous patients from the asylum was Margaret Schilling. When her obituary was published in the January 13, 1979 issue of the Zanesville Times Recorder, this Perry County native had been missing for a month. Most had assumed the 53-year-old had somehow escaped from the sprawling campus and was on the lam, enjoying her newfound freedom. None had guessed that this wife and mother had somehow fled, unsupervised, to one of the cordoned-off and unheated wings. After climbing a desolate stairway, she'd entered a bare and icy room, removed all her clothing, and folded it neatly beside her. She'd laid herself flat on her back in the center of the room, while sunlight poured through several oversized windows, bathing her freezing body and light. Six weeks later, a maintenance worker would discover what remained of her corpse, there on the floor. While the official cause of death was heart failure, this certainly resulted from the freezing temperatures she endured in that winter season. Once her remains were taken away, custodial staff set to the grim task of removing a stain which marked the outline of her body against the floor. It seems a chemical reaction between her decomposing body and the floor resulted in the distinct silhouette of her small frame. Despite multiple attempts with various cleaning agents, the stain would not release. And although this claim sounds more like fiction than fact, I've been able to confirm from folks who've seen it for themselves. The stain does indeed remain, marking the place where Margaret Schilling breathed her last, in the building meant to inspire hope and healing to the masses. One bit of lore that has surfaced around this genuine history is a curse. Incoming freshmen who arrive to OU's campus every fall are informed of the macabre tale. As the tale goes, anyone who ventures into the unused wing, following the same path Margaret did all those years ago, and touches the stain that marks the spot where she perished, will soon die a torturous death. Just what was Margaret Schilling fleeing from? Or did she simply wander off? exploring forbidden spaces to break the monotony of her days. Of course, we'll never know for sure. What we do know, however, is that countless patients like her suffered treatments we would today consider barbaric. In decades long past, before the advent of modern medications which quell the most severe of symptoms, 
staff were desperate for some way of overcoming the worst ravages of mental illness. For those who went before us, many suffered the trials and errors of new and unknown treatments. Usually, they had no choice in the matter. Unable to give consent, we owe the efficacy of our current treatments to their sacrifices. The graves of many souls remain on the grounds there today. Amid inviting hiking trails stands a cemetery of nearly 2,000 registered plots. The vast majority of gravestones bear simply a number, no names, no dates. Since as early as the 1870s, many patients lost ties with their family members during their tenure at the institution. Quite sadly, the world went on without them, and when their final days came to pass, no one was left to collect their remains. The state's solution to this tragedy was to simply bury them there, at the place where they had been forgotten by those who once knew them, with only a number to mark their existence. Within these plots were once people, including Civil War veterans who suffered a condition we would later come to know as PTSD, and epileptics once believed possessed by the devil, and women suffering postpartum depression. Yet some of the most arcane reasons for being admitted to the asylum included decadence, which is essentially too much spending, too much sexual activity, and too much boozing. It seems the vast majority of us today would qualify for entrance into such a place. In an effort to preserve the legacy of those poor souls who suffered so greatly, the National Alliance for the Mentally Ill, also known as NAMI, has undertaken a project to restore and demystify the gravesites contained on these grounds. Through painstaking efforts, they have cut back the overgrown weeds and reset leaning and overturned tombstones to their rightful positions. With the help of many additional organizations, they are working to identify the names of those buried there. One by one, with the permission of living descendants, they are erecting complete headstones, which document that a person, not a number, lies below. You can find a link in the show notes for NAMI's webpage on this very project. There, you can discover how you can connect and support these valuable efforts. For the second portion of today's episode, we'll get to hear from another local, a Mr. Matt Box. Having been born and raised near the area, Matt offers unique insights. You'll hear him make reference to Billy Milligan, one of the asylum's most infamous patients. Coincidentally, Steve Call, the man you heard interviewed previously, is the son of Dr. David Call. Dr. Call was one of Billy Milligan's psychiatrists there at the asylum. Netflix recently released a documentary on Milligan's multiple felonies, including murder and rape, and the alleged mental illness he used as a defense. Monsters Inside, The 24 Faces of Billy Milligan outlines the controversial story of one man who claimed multiple personalities living within his mind committed his crimes. 
Milligan spent considerable time in the Athens Asylum and was often given permission to leave the premises, going into town for lunch, mingling with the locals. Matt recalls his own experiences spotting Milligan downtown. Even more than that, he shares personal memories working as a groundkeeper at the location for a couple summers in the mid-1990s. Come, hear his story. You know, when I moved to Athens, um, at least into the area, I was pretty young. Um, I think I was probably six or seven years old. And uh, I grew up in the next county over from Athens um, in a very rural area of Vinton County. And Athens was sort of the biggest town, you know, close by to where we lived. So my mother and I would come to Athens to do our grocery shopping and, you know, walk around the sort of civilization that Athens had to offer. And driving into town and, and sort of seeing the ridges, you know, obviously it piqued my curiosity. And so, you know, I was always just intrigued by the place. Um, and my mom and I sometimes would go walk around the grounds just for something to do on a Saturday. And, you know, there was also the the Billy Milligan aspect. You know, he was, he actually lived in town when we first moved uh, to the area. And being a kid, I didn't fully understand the whole background of his story. But, yeah, sometimes we would see him walking around on the street or eating lunch at the Woolworth department store lunch counter. Yeah, and so as I got older and, you know, became more familiar with uh, with his story, you know, looking back on that, it was very interesting to be exposed to that. But, yeah, you know, I mean, visually, again, the buildings just look like a place that you are intimidated by. It's, as I said before, it looms sort of ominously on its hilltop, and uh, that definitely colored my first impressions of the place. Right. And you know, I had just recently watched the documentary on, on Billy Mulligan, as I'm sure yep. many people have. So um, very interesting to see how that tied into uh, the location itself. Of course, he had mm-hmm. quite a complicated life, but the fact that, you know, you recall him being there and having seen him, and now you probably understand it more as an adult in terms of the implications yeah. of him being there. Yeah. Most definitely, yeah. I mean, thinking about the fact that, wow, you know, I was literally like, walked by this guy on the street as a right. kid and sends a chill up the spine sometimes. <laughs> and I mean, that's kind of an interesting thing too, because when the hospital closed, my understanding that they found other hospitals and other facilities to absorb the vast majority of patients that had been um, in residence up there, but also they weren't able to find places for all of them. So a good bit of People who had been residents up there were absorbed into the community here in town. Back in those days, it was pretty common to, there were a lot more people with mental illness just part of the community after the hospital closed. What are some more of your memorable uh, experiences on the job? Anything that stands out? And I know it's been quite a while back now, but... Um, sure. Well, I mean, one thing that I really remember is, you know, my job was uh, in the summers. Um, I think it was probably the summer of 94 and the summer of 95. I worked up there for two successive years. Um, And I remember, you know, I'd lived in a house off campus, not far from where I live now, actually. And I would have to be at the ridges in the morning. And so, you know, I would ride my bike on the bike path. Um, 
uh-huh. since it goes along the river in the evenings, it would get it would cool down, and so in the mornings there would be a lot of fog along the path that I had to to ride. And um, I just I really remember you know my first few mornings riding my bike to this place and seeing it appear out of the fog. <laughs> very cinematic, yeah. Very much so, yeah. I'm just thinking, man, what am I getting myself into here? It's the type of place that, like I said before, I mean, it's hard not to imprint it with, you know, all these cultural ideas that we have of of an insane asylum. Uh, do you recall having any strange or unusual experiences? I do, actually. Not many, you know, strangely enough, other than just the general sense of ominousness. There's the main building, which is a very, very large, you know, multi-story building um, with a Victorian facade. Um, I was weed-eating the perimeter, like, you know, basically around the edge of the building. We, we basically had to weed-eat all the way around this gigantic building, and it has places where it turns in upon itself and makes these like small courtyards. I just remember following my trail with the weed eater and I was about to enter into this little courtyard area and I just immediately had this sense of my my brain just told me to stop and I had this amazing sense of fear which is interesting because like there was no outside stimulus to cause that in me. Just more of just like, okay, don't go into this courtyard for some reason. You know what I mean? And I can't explain like what yeah. made me feel that way, but yeah, I just stopped, looked around and didn't see anything, but I definitely backed off and <laughs> told my crewmates about it later. And um, it was a while before I went back into that space it didn't happen to me again. So, yeah, I can't really explain what that was all about, but certainly there was something. Like a um, gut feeling. Yeah, for sure. Yep. And one that stuck with you after all these years. Absolutely. It's probably my most vivid memory of being up there, just in terms of strange things that are unexplained. Yeah. You know, I mean, the interesting thing is when I moved down here, Athens was a little hippie enclave, like a backwater it was. It still had a decent-sized population, but it was also the type of town where if you were here for a year, you would know everybody, you know what I mean? Um, and that is slowly but surely starting to fade. And that is most certainly one of the reasons that I've stayed around here for so long. And now that it's changing and starting to look a little bit more like everywhere else, you know what I mean? Um, I hate to see that. And... Luckily, we do have the university and the historical society and other, you know, agencies that are are pushing back against the onrushing blandness that, you know, a lot of the towns tend to experience this day and age. And so, yeah, it's important to to sort of keep that keep that alive, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree, and that might reflect some more of why parts of the history, like the ridges, and I'm sure there are many others holding on to that is part of what makes you different. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. So that's a unique perspective I hadn't really thought about uh, Mm -hmm. before. I keep thinking about the fact that when the place was built, um, the ideas about mental illness, people that were socially marginal, 
they were different than they are today, obviously. And so I, my understanding is that the Ridges was built for the purpose of of being able to give those people a better quality of life in terms of, yeah, we're going to remove you from society, but we're also going to put you in a place where there's natural beauty and there is the ability to to do work and exert yourself and try to find some humanness for whatever that means definition-wise. But I think there's something to be said about that versus the more scientific and clinical approach. It's apples and oranges maybe, but um, I, I like the idea behind creating a place that gives a person a chance to just look inward and connect with with nature. And I think that that was a big reason why the Ridges was built where it was and how it was. Um, yeah, I just think that's an interesting, you know, I mean, obviously, I don't think a place like that will be built in the modern age today. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. Right. Yeah, I think that's an interesting aspect of the place that a lot of people may overlook sometimes. You know, and that's not to say that there weren't suffering and electroshock therapy and experimental approaches mm-hmm. to, quote-unquote, healing people's mental problems, but um, I don't know. I'm so it's glad just, that you brought that up because it, it really does bring things full circle because I think a lot of times when people look at it now, it has that looming, uh, ominous reputation, but you're absolutely right that at the time it was built under... Um, they call it the Kirkbride plan. Right. Uh, yeah, which was all about instead of putting folks with mental illness in warehouses until they die, you know, let's put them somewhere where they can uh, be in touch with the healing aspects of nature and yeah. have some kind of work to do, right? So it really was a very humane, before its time approach for exactly. the 19th century, right? Yep. And I, I mean, that definitely changed over time. You know, I mean, uh-huh. I think the place did, in fact, you just get um, on track with the more, I don't know what the word is, um, putting people in a locked room right. and letting them figure out their own problems, I guess. And much more invasive, quote, mm-hmm. treatment, uh, the lobotomies. And exactly. Yes. Doctors. Right. Right. Yep. They did stray pretty far away from that initial uh, mindset. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, you know, I mean, I guess the the takeaway from the ridges is that you don't want to necessarily judge a book by its cover. I mean, yes, there is a very creepy and dark and sort of sinister aspect to the place, but is that something that we are all bringing to the table because of the things that, the images of insanity that we sort of grew up with? Or is it inherent in the place itself? Because, you know, obviously there's more to that place than just that aspect of it, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Um, I think that's that's definitely an important takeaway for people who have never seen the the, the campus. Right. Um, yeah. I, I think for me it underscores that it's not so much the location itself, even though it's for, so foreboding, but it's the people who are in it and how they're operating and how they're treating each other um, ultimately. That's an insight that just came to me in the course of our interviews. I appreciate you sharing your thoughts on that because I hadn't been considering that angle. Yeah, yeah. 
The way we treat each other. It's a sentiment as old as the Bible, codified in the Golden Rule. One of the through lines I've discovered on researching this story was that very guiding principle. The Athens Lunatic Asylum, as designed in the mid-19th century, was just one example of many similar facilities across the country that approached mental health treatment in a revolutionary way. Asylums built under the Kirkbride Plan emphasized time spent in nature, the value of work, and the healing power of a community built to support someone in need of care. This was the way of thinking under which plans for the asylum began in 1868. In previous centuries, we believed mental illness sprang forth from demonic spirits. We believed those who suffered insanity needed treatments tantamount to torture today, all to save their souls. And when that way of thinking fell by the wayside, we came to view mental illness as a weakness, a sure sign of a person who simply didn't have the intelligence to figure out their own problems. These folks were marginalized, devalued, and locked away out of sight, so the rest of us could go on enjoying our lives without having to see them. And as a further injustice, the label of mental illness became a weapon, a way to punish those folks viewed as unsavory. For example, women suspected of unfaithfulness and sexual promiscuity could be committed to such institutions by their husbands, fathers, or other family members. Among other actual committal reasons listed in historical admission records include laziness, asthma, epilepsy, and jealousy. Those who were most susceptible to involuntary admission included members of society with the least power, women, the poor, the disabled, and others among them. Our view of mental health issues has evolved, thankfully. Common treatments today include use of talk therapy and medications, which are most often managed on an outpatient basis. The era of sprawling asylum campuses, housing hundreds of patients, are long gone. We've come a long way in our understanding of what it means to suffer from known conditions, like depression, anxiety, and so many others. Arguably, we have a long way to go in fighting the stigma which remains. I'd like to think that the guiding principles that drove the Kirkbride plan more than a century ago can light our way yet today. When we view those who suffer mental illness as people, when we realize that any one of us is as vulnerable to developing the same struggles, then we all rise together. Perhaps the alleged spirits who remain within the walls of this still-standing asylum carry this message. Perhaps they long for connection, acceptance, and the path forward they were never given in life. My hope is that this structure stands as a monument to our everlasting attempts to treat those least among us as fellow humans, all facing unique challenges and longing for unconditional love. Many fellow Ohioans lived and died at this storied location. Many are buried with nothing but a number 
to mark their resting places. This episode is dedicated in their memories and hopes that their lives were not lost in vain. May their stories guide our thinking and our choices and the way we treat the least among us today and in the years ahead. This concludes today's episode on the Athens Lunatic Asylum. I hope you've enjoyed it. If so, please rate, review, and subscribe to Ohio Folklore on your chosen podcast platform. You can find Ohio Folklore at ohiofolklore.com and on Facebook. And as always, keep wondering.